0: Coming up on this week's show, we Nintendo planning the Switch back in 2006.
1: Pac-Man joins the Mile High Club. And we go Inside Bullfrog with Alex Trowers.
0: The Retro Owl Podcast is brought to you each week with our incredible friends at the amazing Bitmap Books. And keep listening if you're a fan of the Sega Master System. And check them out right now at bitmapbooks.co.uk. Hello and welcome to the Retro Hour podcast, episode number 265, your weekly dose of retro gaming and technology news with me, Dan Wood. Me, Ravi Abbott. And me, Joe Fox. And welcome to this week's show where we take a bit of time out of modern life. I mean, thinking about what's been going on. I'm on a week off at the moment, but still, there's things to do around the house. We're going to take the dog out every day. Joe's just finished a big supermarket trip for about two hours. I've been talking to the
2: cat.
1: They're the highlights of our week. No, the highlight of our week
2: is getting together and talking about retro games for an hour. That's the highlight of my week, really. Not going bloody shopping in Asda.
1: Definitely. (laughs)
0: reminiscing about those days when all you had to worry about in life was which game you're going to rent from Blockbuster this weekend. That's what this show is about. And, of course, we take you behind the scenes of those games that you grew up playing as well with a special guest on each week's show. Now, today, we're going to be talking about a legendary British gaming company. We're going to be going inside
1: Bullfrog. Yes, we're talking to Alex Trowers from Bullfrog. And, you know, Alex was involved in a lot of really big games. And uh, we're talking like Powermonger. Uh, Syndicate, Populous, and Magic Carpet. Magic Carpet was really a changing point in gaming, wasn't it? It was uh, where they had that kind of 3D voxel landscape and you flew through it. I've got loads of memories of Magic
2: Carpet. I remember my literally my brother putting the demo on a Magic Carpet and calling me like to come upstairs to come and see this game because it was, it was like it's in 3D and we're flying around and it was just like amazing. We had the demo of it, so we had to pick the game up. But he also worked on games like Theme Park and Theme
1: Hospital as well, which is really cool. Yeah, and Syndicate, which, you know, I'm a real big fan of Syndicate. Absolutely amazing game. And like you said, Populous, that was a very God kind of game. And uh, so was Powermonger. And, you know, Bullfrog were innovators in the God titles, but also run by Peter Molyneux and Alex actually talks a lot about Peter Molyneux and about the whole kind of culture at Bullfrog it's really interesting interview this one
0: yeah because we did an episode a couple of years ago with uh, Glenn Corpus who worked um, alongside Alex as well so if you enjoyed um, this week's show make sure you go back and check that one out too that was a really good interview but I mean it is a company that you know there are probably only a handful of real legendary British gaming companies I can think of and Bullfrog are definitely
2: up there yeah absolutely 100% you know what it's really interesting as well because of when when i get involved in these interviews and stuff like i'm like as if they're british like as a kid i just assumed they're always japanese or american but there's so <laughs> many just doing the podcast there's so many amazing british you know pr- you know game companies and stuff it's just amazing to find out about them all
0: yeah so we're going to be joined by alex trowers on the retro hour podcast in around 20 minutes from now you guys actually did this one so we're looking forward to kicking back and uh checking out what alex has got to say he'll be on the show very soon now uh we've actually got a P.O. Box that we've set up as well. If you want to uh, send us anything via snail mail, Ravi will jump on the bus and go and collect it.
1: Well, this is the thing. Because of COVID hours, they're opening up really early in the morning, and I've not got up that early in the morning for a long time. stay up all night, Ravi. (laughs) Yeah, probably easier. (laughs) Falls asleep
2: on the bus on the way there.
1: (laughs) So I'm aiming to go and check it um, this month, which should be really interesting. And uh, the P.O. Box is... The Retro Hour, P.O. Box 10926, Nottingham, NG19, NS, United Kingdom. You know what? When you
0: read out addresses like that, it always makes me think of like uh, Saturday morning TV Play days when I was a kid. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we, we should do like competitions where you've got to send your answer on the back of a postcard.
1: Just, just go to your parents' wallet, take out five pounds.
2: <laughs> you know what? I've got a really embarrassing story because I used to draw pictures when I was a kid for like, you know, Nickelodeon and stuff. And I used to just post them with no envelope or anything, just post them in the letterbox. Thinking that's how it worked, <laughs> and my parents never stopped me. <laughs> You're only eighteen when you did that, weren't you?
1: Yeah, that was only last year, mate. <laughs> the postman's bedroom's just full of all these Nickelodeon.
2: Did <laughs> you
0: ever apply to go on TV shows?
2: Uh, my brother applied to go on Funhouse. Um, wow! And I remember as a kid, he used to always tell me that he did actually go on it with my cousin, but he never
1: did. <laughs> I, I i think I was on one. um Oh God, they went round schools. It was called like It's a Bitsa or something like that. It was on oh, the, I vaguely remember. it. Yeah, yeah, it was on like the BBC uh, in the really early days. And uh, they used to have all these. I think it was like they'd bring this mad device and they'd be like, oh, it's a bitzer, I've got very distant memories of it. And yeah, don't try and look through and find tapes. <laughs> <laughs> I applied
0: to go on one well, nightmare didn't get oh, any of that. Yeah, yeah, um and do you remember finders keepers with Neil Buchanan? Yeah, yeah. Where you had to trash the house and have to find things in the
2: rooms. I was about I to say is that there. the one where I, I vaguely remember kids pulling all the drawers out of like yeah,
1: well, wardrobes it, and stuff it, like, it, like it, that. Yeah. that it, it made newspaper <laughs> headlines cuz they'd like there was a bit Room Raiders, wasn't it? Where you go yep. and, 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 like, wreck all the rooms and they were like, kids are just going to go to houses and trash them. And it's like they know the difference.
0: <laughs> well, you say that. Me and my brother used to play it around the house. So, uh... <laughs> <laughs> No, and maybe then not. play clean-up afterwards.
2: Just in your mum's bedroom, just like, <laughs> yes, wah!
1: <we>
0: <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yeah, unfortunately, never got on that, but, you know, we've, we've now got our own PO box if you want to send us things. What kind of stuff are people going to send us? Are like, what, arcade cabinets? M- massive 14-inch CRTs for Ravi to <laughs> yeah, back Yeah, please the don't button. send anything
1: big, but um, <laughs> just a- anything you find interesting, yeah. And the reason we've kind of opened it is because we're trademarked now. So um, we we, we had to open it to get a trademark registered, so... We've got it, so we're like, why not put it out to the listeners?
0: Yeah, so uh, if you do want to send us any uh, interesting items, that's your address for uh, Ravi to collect it. Um, so we're going to be joined by Alex very soon. Before that, of course, we update you on what's been happening in the world of retro gaming over the last seven days. And let's start with a story about the Nintendo DS. Now, you might be thinking, oh, not all that retro, but actually it came out in 2006. Yeah. So, we're definitely getting there. Th-
2: no, the DS Lite came out in 2006. Right, the yeah, original yeah. DS was, I want to say 2004 could be 2005, people screaming at me right now. But yeah, I mean, that's 2005, still, you know, 2006, sorry, still 15 years ago. Um, but yeah, this is really interesting. So um Beta64 shared this on Twitter, um, that essentially lost Nintendo history, the team there, have hacked the, um, the DS Lite. I'm not too sure, the article doesn't say what they did to it, but they've hacked it, but they've found unused data in there that there was an the ability to essentially put the DS onto your TV. So, you know, you could play TS game, DS games on your TV, essentially like the Switch. Absolutely no explanation to why, you know, it was there or why it wasn't used or anything like that. But it just kind of begs to think the question of when Nintendo, thinking of this, you know, thinking of this technology and stuff like that, thinking about this all the way back, you know, because it would have been making the DS Lite in 2005, I imagine, to come out in
1: 2006. But yeah. It's it's interesting. They seem to have made a little um, custom board. <clears throat> and uh, this board, um, you need to flash the custom hardware onto your DS. Yes. And then uh, that will enable the TV out. And then you can go from the DS into the board and then out. Like, I think, can you use external controllers? With the DS. Like. I don't
2: think you Not can. that I know of, you. I don't think you can. In the picture, they've got, like, a Switch controller, haven't they there? A Pro
1: controller, but I don't think you can do that. Because I, I, I'm just thinking, like, maybe there's a whole third-party market that used to do this. It's kind of just now been destroyed. Um, well, <laughs> of, like, adapters that would hook it up to your television. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm not that clued in on this, but it seems like they've actually created a little board, and this board you know, um, people could start printing it and uh, it may mm. may actually become a thing. You know? Yeah, it'd be, be interesting to see. I mean, funny enough,
2: it was actually discovered by somebody else a year ago, but it's only since Beta64 has tweeted it. You know, this last kind of, I think, literally tweeted it a couple of days ago on 22nd of February, uh, so just over a week ago now. That's where it's kind of blowing up and people are learning about it and stuff like that. Um, but I think, yeah, Nintendo probably missed the trick there you know personally i mean could you do it with the psp could you do that
1: with the psp well they're saying it it's got a digital to analog converter in it so basically it's 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 a proper analog signal coming out yeah. of the uh, ds light and then it, it gets amplified and then delivered via composite video mm. so it's not going to be the most amazing quality yeah but um you know you're thinking you've got that tiny screen and you're actually blowing that up onto a yeah yeah onto exactly. a big television as well
0: well, I think the biggest issue is, I mean, it kind of just proved that Nintendo had been thinking about the hybrid thing for a while, but the big problem with the DS is you got two screens.
2: I was literally about to say, I wonder if the reason they scrapped it is because of the two screens, or yeah. I wonder if they had in mind, you know, one of the screens is up on the TV and then the screen down, you know, in, in your hands kind of thing. Like, like the Wii U. Yeah, like the Wii U essentially yeah. maybe, but I, 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 I don't know, I don't know where they were going with it or... If, you know, when people emulate the DS, you just have both screens, you know, when you watch like a review or something and people
1: play it on emulation, both yeah. screens are kind of on there. Maybe they're, they're going to do something like that. And uh, not all games support both screens, do they? But like some, it's just dead, like the other screen is, or, or it's not got... Yeah, function, there's only, right? I think
2: there's only a couple of games like that. And they're usually like re-releases of Game Boy Advance games or Super Nintendo games, you know, what they ported over. Or N64 game, and it
1: seems that you have to download this thing called the Twilight Menu as well, which is mm. a kind of hacking thing, and you'll need a flash card for it. And, you know, so it does it does require a lot of kind of playing about, but they may get it a lot slicker in the future.
0: Yeah, I do like hearing about you know like hidden features inside systems that you know weren't actually used at the time. I remember hearing about the fact that there was a, an FM radio built into i think it was the iphone 3g that was just there really? on the board and they never used it yeah so oh, wow I, yeah, had, I
1: had an iphone 3g <laughs> yeah it was never enabled yeah it was in there the radios are interesting because there was this like um you know these sony walkman digital um players for like flack and stuff like that and higher quality uh, high resolution audio players and sometimes the radios aren't enabled because there's different laws in different right. areas um but you can like update the firmware, hack them a bit. And it's kind of like retroactively finding something and then, uh, you know, finding the feature and adding it yourself. I quite like that too, yeah.
0: Well, I guess if the companies have gone to the effort of actually designing it, I guess it's probably more expensive to actually redesign it and take that feature off the board than just disable it.
1: Yeah, rather than just like turn it off, you know, with a little configuration thing.
0: Now let's talk about Lego. I mean, you know, whatever age you are, Lego's still fun, isn't it? Um, I will admit, I'm actually not the best person to talk about Lego. I've, uh, I don't know if I mentioned this on the show before, my missus got me a Back to the Future DeLorean um, Lego set back in, I think it was 2011 that I still haven't finished yet. <laughs> <laughs> that's
2: wow. So, that's so, like, typical Dan, night. is. <laughs> I'm not going to lie. I, I mean, I quite like Lego. And when I went to Florida a couple of years ago, there was a few Lego shops there. And I bought like loads of Star Wars Lego, and I'm not like I bought like four sets and I've only built like two of them, but not because I'm it, just because I've not had the time
1: to do it yet. Um, well, my mate, uh, Peter Chu, Pete, if you're listening, wicked Lego collection back in the days. He used to have a whole society in his bedroom with like <laughs> satellites going across and like, oh, it was absolutely amazing. I was a bit of a Lego addict, I was. Well,
2: if he's still got his Lego society, he can make a Green Hill Zone Sonic in there, you know, from, from this year, hopefully. Um, Yeah, this is this is really cool. You actually sent me this a couple of weeks ago, didn't you, Ravi, when it was still just a kind of a petition, an idea. But essentially, from what I understand, Lego have a website called like ideas, like like legoideas.com or ideaslego.com. But essentially, it's where people who are like super Lego fans can submit ideas they've had or, you know, sets they've made from other sets. And this is one by a Lego fan called Viv Gr- Granel, I believe it is. And what she's done is she's made the Sonic Mania, Sonic Green Hill Zone with Sonic, Dr. Robotnik, the little bad guy robots from Sonic Mania. You know, you've got some of the enemies in there and you've got like the wheel spin and everything like that. It got, it hit its target of 10,000 votes. So it's actually happening, which is really, really cool.
1: Yeah, it's really cool, this idea. So um, uh, because... People have been able to design the Lego with mm. like three uh, D programs, you know. Mm. So you've got every piece available, which you probably didn't have when you were younger. Yeah, because it's massively expensive, still is. <laughs> um, like, um, they can create these wonderful things. Like, um, Perifractic had one, which was his Brixty sixty four, which was an actual Commodore sixty four that oh, wow. was built out of Lego, and the keyboard worked and everything. But mm. um, that didn't become an idea. But I think it's like they they, they kind of just choose the public as the designer, yeah. And then and then that happens. And like the Minecraft Lego was really popular as well. So it's good to see this Sonic one. Yeah, there. well, well it's know. like the, N- the Nintendo Lego has been really
2: popular as well, hasn't it? You know, all the Mario stuff, and then obviously the actual Nintendo console as well. Um, but interestingly, obviously, it's the 30th anniversary of Sonic this year in June um so i Wild. wonder if they're going to try and kind of like you know coincide it with that it'll come out in june or something because they've not said when it'll be out other than this year uh, but it is it's is, i find it interesting that this is kind of you know oh yeah it was the sonic set you know people can vote for and then they're like oh yeah it is it's the 30th anniversary of sonic like it fits in a little bit too nicely but my only issue with it is you said ravi it's always so flipping expensive it's so cool but it's like they're
1: always, like, £150 for these, like, big sets, aren't they? Yeah, like, I know some people that are into vintage Lego collecting. Oh, gosh, yeah. They have, like, the old ones from the 80s, and those full kits go for thousands, you know? It's oh, absolutely God. mad. Yeah, maybe, maybe
2: Dan can use his DeLorean and go back and get <laughs> us a few it. sets.
1: <laughs> it's rare now, Dan. <laughs>
0: my
2: delorean will be retro by the time i build it probably <laughs>
0: <laughs> but you're right though about the prices i remember the ghostbusters firehouse when they brought that out you know that was like a massive probably about like a meter and a half high um, lego firehouse i brought out a few years ago and i think i've got a feeling that was like about three or four hundred quid over yeah, here it the, was like the, really expensive the death star
2: one that i always see is like 500 quid or something it's just crazy. You know, I wanted the Nintendo one, and I think that was like 180 quid or something, like something mad like that. I could be wrong, but... Go for Mega Blocks. Mega Blocks.
0: <laughs> <laughs> we did actually see the um, the Ghostbusters one in a Lego shop in Milan. Oh, really? When we were on holiday, and it was like 250 euros, and I was like, can I bring that back on the plane? I was like, probably not. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I didn't get it. Then again, the amount of time it took me to build that DeLorean, I wouldn't fancy my joke. <laughs> Let's get into a bit of PC gaming. I mean, you know, back in the day when um, 3D became the norm, there was one series of graphics cards that, of course, everyone wanted back then. That was the 3D FX Voodoo range. Now it turns out there was, um, if I'm not mistaken, the last one in the range, the Voodoo Five Six Thousand. That was meant to be kind of the the top end of the 3DFX Voodoo range that didn't actually get released in the end because it was around that time I think NVIDIA um, took over them um, and it didn't get released but now a fan has actually made his own Voodoo 5-6000.
1: Yeah, uh, the, he's actually reversed engineered it and it's an exact copy and um, this is totally mental. Um, yeah, uh, I, I heard uh, this week in retro Neil was talking about this and he seems to be a really big Voodoo fan. Like I was into those graphics cards but you're right when when um, the other people entered the market, suddenly Voodoo was kind of priced out. Now, these cards do get extremely hot. And as you can see, they've got like um, four huge fans and heat sinks on there. It's, it's it's quite a beast, isn't it?
0: So is this all original parts then or is this kind of um, modern parts? Oh, it's all, all
1: modern parts, but it's all based on, on the old one. So... Um, with new components, uh, a new PCB reverse engineered. Now, I don't know if the company still exists, um, because this is kind of like you're releasing a project that was a bit of a concept, and uh, you're putting it out there as as a a kind of working piece of... uh, Hardware, yeah, it's it's quite interesting to see reverse engineering of things. You know, maybe one day we'll see a, a reversed engineered M2 or <laughs> like, yeah. Uh, yeah, if people can get all the details, I wonder, I wonder how we how we got them. And uh, you can see that this this card um, actually requires a Molex connector as well, so it's one of these ones where you'd have to plug in some extra power as well, which was uh, kind of standard in graphics cards now, but back then it really wasn't wasn't done that much.
0: Yeah, it's got um sixteen time. It's actually quite a lot of um power on here. Looking at it, 128 megabytes of RAM, which for the nineties, I mean, God, graphics cards back then. I think mine was like my first PC had like a, a four megabyte graphics card or something in it.
1: Yeah, if you're running like Windows 98, <laughs> then you really don't need all this power. But um, this is like it's like the Ferrari, isn't it? It's like the 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 real high end one, and I guess. These PC gamers and real voodoo fans uh, really, really wanted this for a long time. So I don't know. Do you think he's going to be selling it on or he's just going to make a one off?
0: Well, like you said, I mean, you know, the, the assets of 3DFX were sold to NVIDIA. So they, I guess they own all the trademarks and everything now. Um, so whether he needs, I'd imagine to sell them you can need permission from them. I mean, I guess the most sensible thing to do will probably be to just kind of open source it and people can build their own. You know, I imagine NVIDIA would probably turn a blind eye to that, but I imagine if he was selling them commercially, you would need a license to use the trademarks at least.
1: Because it's saying, you know, it's the exact performance. It's got the same BIOS and the same drivers as well. So maybe there'd be a few issues with BIOS and, and stuff like that. But um, yeah, it, it does look interesting. And uh, these PCI cards... Um, Uh, were really quite nice.
0: I do like the fact that people are kind of taking on projects for things that never got released back in the day. Like I saw on, um, you know, that Amiga... 1200 cd-rom drive that cd 1200 like a group of guys in australia who are kind of you know wanting to make their own version of that and putting it out there as well and like you said i mean there are people in the jaguar community who are making things that were you know rumored in magazines back in the day that never got released so it would be cool if more of these kind of things came out i mean like you said you know that the 3do m2 that would be amazing if, like, you know, a group got together and actually maybe a crowdfunding kind of thing, you know, to finally get these bits of technology that we all drooled over back in the day that never made it
1: to market finally out there. I guess it's getting as much documentation, information, and someone who's a complete expert in this, you know, maybe if they could get someone who was actually involved in the project at the time, um, they may be able to do stuff like that,
0: yeah. Well, speaking of reverse engineering, it doesn't always go to plan. Um, Story here about Grand Theft Auto Take-Two. Have DMCA takedown the reverse-engineered GTA source code?
1: Yeah, so this is absolutely amazing. This is GTA 3, and they've reverse-engineered this, and uh, also Vice City. And they're all kind of based on the same code base. Um, What they've done is they've gone through and they've generated uh, tons of code, based on analysing uh, the original code, but also they've obviously they've taken all the assets out of the game. So, you know, you've got the road images, you've got uh, the music, you've got uh, everything that's kind of owned by Take-Two. So Take-Two would obviously want to take this down, but the great thing about this is it's spawned a lot of projects. So there's the uh, Wii U version now, which has been created of GTA 3 uh which is called re GTA 3 and that's based on this code as well so that's actually getting done at the moment and uh it's pretty mad to see G- uh, GTA 3 like kind of classic title coming to the Wii U but also there was a release for the Switch now the Switch version modern vintage gamer did a, a video on and actually they've managed to port San Andreas so what they've done is they've used this code base but they've put the San Andreas assets in there and that's now uh, kind of available for home-brewed versions. Uh, they're a bit buggy, but, um, you know, that's going to get changed and developed over time. I, I don't know if these projects are going to have to be a bit stealthy though, because seeing that the main reversed engineer project's been taken down, these like little ports, I don't know if they're going to be stealthy. The Wii U one's probably going to slip through because no one <laughs> really cares about the Wii U at the moment, but... If you think they'd want to probably make some money out of releasing San Andreas on the Switch, um, and having an alternative version it could be really, really hard. Like um, recently, there was a there there was a whole scene of modding online mods for GTA, and someone did one for GTA Five, and um, they really, really uh, they got pursued in court and kind of taken down by Take Two as well. Which I don't know. It's, it kind of seems a bit unfair because there's been titles like Multi-Theft Auto, San Andreas Multiplayer that pioneered GTA online. And, you know, now that they've bothered to do it themselves, they start uh, kind of attacking the uh, modders and the groups, which I don't know. It doesn't it doesn't really seem in uh, GTA ethics to me. Um, like, you know, it kind of had that Doom philosophy when you very first started, which was like mod everything, go mad. But now it's like mod what we tell you to mod on Steam, or <laughs> like,
0: you know. I, I think with this kind of thing, it, it's very much you know. There's obviously a fine line with trademarks and copyright, and I know there is. You know, like if you cover a song, if you do a cover version of a song, that's generally all right. But if you sample the original song, then it's not. So I guess it depends kind of how much. You know, if they've made a game that's based on it and actually done their own code from scratch, I imagine that's more likely to legally be allowed than actually taking source code from the original game. And then another is like rules in certain countries where um, copyright
1: owners are required to protect their IPs, otherwise they'd lose them. Yeah, also also, I just missed out that they'd also ported uh, San Andreas to the Vita as well, which was uh, really interesting.
0: What do you think, you know, these games now, I mean, we can't be far off the, the 20th anniversary. Yeah, yeah. Of those, I mean, when did GTA 3 come out? Was that 2001?
1: I think I just remember it was uh, XP Service Pack Two uh, when GTA Three was out. And talking of those voodoo cards, uh, if you ran GTA on one of them, it would have been absolutely amazing. You
2: know, uh, GTA yeah. Three came out on the twenty second of October two thousand and one. Right, so it's coming up to twenty years.
0: Well, that makes me think that maybe the reason they're taking down these projects is you know they're planning on doing something themselves. You know, maybe like. Actually doing HD remasters, which, you know, would obviously, I imagine, would earn them a lot of money.
1: I have a Switch. Is there like a, you know, a GTA pack on the Switch with all of them? If they did GTA 3, uh, Vice City and San Andreas, you know, that could be huge.
0: Yeah. I imagine how many of them would sell. Yeah. (laughs) So that to me is like, you know, it makes sense that if you owned the Grand Theft Auto franchise, and obviously that is the biggest franchise not only in gaming but probably in entertainment as well isn't it you yeah, know the amount yeah, of copies that you know started. what i
1: think the problem is i think the problem is that it's on consoles if it was on pc it would have been left alone and they would have just left the modders to do it and kind of play with it because that's what they do like there's a there's a whole community of replacing the assets with photorealistic stuff you know updating it there's even a modding community for uh, red dead redemption um but yeah, I think because it's it's getting ported onto other consoles and stuff, uh, it starts to affect their market.
0: Well, you just watch. I bet there's going to be 20th anniversary releases coming out. Yeah. It's going to happen. The GTA sure.
1: triple pack for the Switch.
0: Yeah. Or if they, if they didn't have that idea, they probably have now.
1: Yeah.
0: <laughs> now, before we get into our chat with Alex Trowers, um, obviously, now the summer's kind of approaching. We're all hoping that maybe it won't be too long until we can get on planes and start travelling around. It looks like, though, the in-flight experience might be improved somewhat for us retro gaming fans as there is a new partnership with Panasonic and Bandai Namco who are going to be bringing retro games to the back of an airplane seat near you.
2: Now, this this caught my eye because of when I went to Japan, uh, I can't remember who I flew with there, but I definitely flew back with, like, Air uh, Japan. You could play Pac-Man on the plane there and back but it was amongst like a compilation of like really bad. I can only describe it as like homebrew DVD games, like DVD menu games. And this Pac-Man game played terribly. Like you had to play it with like a TV remote. So I'd much rather play it like a proper arcade port version of it, brought to you by Namco Bandai. But yeah, this this is this is interesting because, like I say, it's it's been done before. But hopefully, they're going to do it. They're going to do it properly this time.
1: I tell you what, I was on a, a Virgin flight coming back from America, mm. and uh, one of them big double-decker planes. And, yeah. Um, there was this, there was this thing where you could just message anyone in any seat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was so <laughs> creepy. It was like you're fit. <laughs> I know, like, where's that come
2: from? Well, interesting. You you say that we I was playing Pac Man against my wife, like when when we were going out to Japan. But what what's cool about this is they're saying you know they're bringing like a whole library of games, but they've kept that under wraps. So far, they've just said you know Pac Man, Dig Dug, and Battle City, um, and
0: Gallagher as well apparently. And
2: Gallag- is it Gallagher as well? Mm, but yeah, yeah, apparently there's going to be like a whole library of games. So you know they've not said anything about like you know the controller or anything like that. But that'd be really cool if you got like a little arcade stick or like a you know like a
1: you know a USB snes controller or something to play them with. Well, well, Sega also have a history of. um gaming on, on planes, don't they, Joe? Do, oh yeah, they do. I was like, do they? <laughs> 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 they do. Tell me more. <laughs> they do, because it was me who told you
2: earlier on. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> is it the say Se- it's the
1: Sega Mega Jet, isn't it? The S- uh, Sega Mega Jet,
2: yeah. Yeah, is, in the uh, in the early 90s was essentially a portable Genesis, wasn't it? Which, you know, you could plug into the uh to the TV screens, you know, in the back of the headset, uh, headrests and stuff, um, on Japanese airlines, uh in like '92, '93, which is kind of where the Nomad came from as well so it's interesting that it's coming full circle like I know 90s fashion is in quite a lot at the moment you know the youngins but just seems to be like 90s
1: gaming (laughs) do do you think it's going to be like you know that show Clarissa where you can yeah. change your clothes on it, and just it's like a real nineties <laughs> computer on the plane. That'd be amazing. You just you'd probably just go on the plane just for that on the trip. <laughs> I, well, I could, just want a round the road trip and then just well, land back at home just to play some games. You know? what, what I would
2: love to see is you know you know they say it's Bandai Namco you know. I'd love it to see if they'd like do a partnership with, like, you know, Ryanair. <laughs> so when you're going to Magaluf,
1: you're playing a bit of Gallagher on
2: the back, on the back <laughs> of the plane and going so on a I, stag do or something.
1: I'm just, I'm just reading this mad, mad little line, which is a uh, retro gamer stated in uh, 2006, July, that um, the majority of mega jets are owned by private collectors came from a shipment that was hijacked by indonesian sea pirates brilliant <laughs> which is wow if you buy if you buy
2: if you buy in a sega mega chat on ebay and you see that it's listed in indonesia
1: it's like the yeah, selling they're proper area pirate. they're proper pirates aren't they sea pirates yeah <laughs> the original pirates yeah crazy that's crazy man
0: I do think it's amazing, though, that it just kind of proves how mainstream retro gaming is mm. becoming now. The fact that it's going to be kind of bundled into in-flight entertainment systems. I mean, again, like you said, it depends what the controller is going to be like. I've got a feeling that the fact that these are kind of touch screens on the back of a seat, it's probably going to be like an on-screen kind of e- touch screen joystick. E- either I that, imagine. or you
2: know, the little headphone jack on the side of like your armrest, and it's just
1: got the up and down. <laughs> I'm do playing you- Pac-Man, but I can only go up and down. <laughs> do you think it's going to be the equivalent of kicking the seat? Though? like hammering Pac-Man really hard with your finger oh, and then the guy behind in front going like, stop bloody playing.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, when you're dying, you smash the back of his seat in frustration. Yeah, yeah. that could uh, cause the arguments, <laughs> I imagine. So uh, yeah, very cool. Keep retro gaming out there, you know. It's uh, nice to see you getting into new places and uh, fingers crossed we'll be on a plane again before long. Now, before we get into our chat with Alex Trowers, just time to give a massive thank you to... Our amazing friends at Bitmap Books, who of course, bring you the Retro Hour podcast each and every week. And uh, if you're a fan of the Sega Master System, now you and I actually, Joe, both own a copy of this brilliant book. This is Sega Master System, a visual compendium.
2: Yeah, man, you actually got me this for Christmas a couple of years ago, and I found myself always picking this game up in the uh, in the games room. It's really, really awesome. It's got over 420 pages, of just different, you know, all the artwork from all different games. There's over 150 different games here as well. And what I really like is just the little articles, you know, just a couple of paragraphs, you know, nothing crazy, nothing like seven pages about Alex the Kid or anything like that. It is literally just, like, two pages on it, and it's just a real easy just pick up and read. You know, I'm not a smart guy. It's got lots of nice big pictures, and it also comes with a really, really cool... It comes with 3D glasses as well. So, actually, some of the pictures are in 3D, which is really cool, which actually... You can hear there as well, so you know, and it's like a hologram, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, it's cover. like a hologram cover, yeah. and you know, oh, you old get the school Sega 3D, style. yeah, proper old school style, and you know, it's the red and blue Sega, you know, proper Sega uh, glasses as well, which is really awesome. So if
0: you're a fan of the Master System, I mean, it covers the most iconic games on the system. Alex Kidd, Fantasy Zone Shinobi, Fantasy Star as well. Around 200 games covered. Like you said, the focus is their visuals Mm -hmm. and it gives you like, you know, little sound bites and anecdotes and memories as well. And really, it's just a celebration of that incredible platform. I mean, I haven't got... Weirdly, I haven't got a Master System in my collection. That is a real oversight. I generally... I can play them on my Mega Drive, but I think I do need to add one to my collection now. Have you got one?
2: Uh, I've got... The Master System 1, you know, the black and red one, the wide one. Oh, that's the best one. It doesn't fit in my games cabinet, you know, because it's really wide. (laughs) So it's in a drawer, which is kind of disappointing. So I should probably pick up a Master System 2 because that one's obviously a bit smaller. Yeah, and then you get Alex Kidd built into that, don't you? Yeah, you do. Very cool? Yeah,
0: that, yeah well, that was an amazing machine. So if you're a fan of it, there are a load of con- contributions as well from uh, experts on the scene and journalists and people that were involved in the games, and there's uh, so many games included. If you're a fan of the Sega Master System, you need to check out a visual compendium, and you can get it by heading to our sponsor's website, bitmapbooks.co.uk. And thank you to our very good friends at Bitmap Books. Now, of course, we have a patron running at the moment. We actually just did our latest episode of our patron's exclusive podcast, The Retro Hour After Hours, where at the weekend we took a little trip back to the year 1999. That was a
1: giggle. Oh yeah, got so many memories of like just bad fashion. <laughs> um, like yeah, we
2: ended up cool about, like Greb, Greb culture and Tony Hawks, didn't we? <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah. But also like you know gaming as well, because there was so many good games there. like I, it was unbelievable. Like I, you know you think the amount of FPSs that came out, but also the amount of groundbreaking titles. It was a real change in time, and of course, the Matrix
0: and load of great games out in that year. You know, we're talking about the Dreamcast, we're talking about the upcoming PlayStation 2, reliving the terror that was the Millennium Bug all over <laughs> again, and uh, hearing about you know Ravi's days as a skater boy. That was quite amusing. Um, if you want to hear more about that, you can check out our exclusive patrons podcast by backing us on Patreon, and a few other perks as well. You get the normal show early most weeks as well. You get it ad-free. Really, though, you're just doing it to show your support to this podcast and ensure that we can continue doing it week in, week out. I mean, we have said that over the last couple of weeks, that really, having Patreon saved this show. Because I was thinking before, actually, you know, because we used to record it in a studio that wasn't ours. We could just get in there, you know, out of hours during the week. And there was always a concern that one day we might not be allowed in there how we're going to do the show and obviously that happened when lockdown came in but thanks for our patrons we invested in kit we've converted our bedrooms at home our spare rooms into studios and we can do the show no matter what's going on in our life now or wherever we are and it is, you know if uh,
1: it's helped with flexibility as well because yeah, if yeah. you think about it we had to go to the studio at set times and we had to do it yeah. when we can and, you know, Dan would sneak us in the back and it would be like, um, <laughs> now we've got any time that we can kind of do it. And uh, we, we, we it, used to do it on a
2: Wednesday night from like eight till med- midnight, didn't we? Yeah. And we, well, do, we get I always guess. try and knock out like two or three episodes, you know, and yeah. it was just always like, a, it was just like a mammoth task, but we did it every week, but this has been so much nicer. We still do it on a Wednesday, but we do it at like four o'clock now, don't we? Like, and it's just it's just yeah. so much better. Like, you know, and we can't we're not we can't thank people enough for letting this happen. And it and it's and kept ready. me
1: sane as well. It's 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 the fun that I have in the week other than talking with the cat, you know. He he doesn't <laughs> reply much, so <laughs> <laughs> And Ravi can do the show in his uh, Spider-Man pyjamas now
0: as well. So, you know, we really appreciate you in, investing in this kit. And, uh, of course, we have ongoing costs all the time. So our patron goes back into the running of the show. And, uh, of course, you will get a mention in the most prestigious high score table in the world of retro gaming, the Retro Hour Hall of Fame. Like This week, thank you very much to Matthias Sundling. Jeremy Rayner. Gary Nutting. Darren Coles. And Ollie Dean who all made donations into our Patreon. That is massively appreciated. Thank you so much, guys. And if you'd like to do the same, you'll find the link on our website, along with everything else that we've talked about in this week's show at theretrohour.com. I did spot as well that we got a few um, nice new reviews on Apple Podcasts. because so I know we've, uh, we mentioned that recently, and a few nice ones come in over the last few weeks, which were always appreciated as well. Someone did say they had trouble finding <laughs> how to review a podcast on uh, the Apple Podcasts app, because you've got to scroll down about like four or five pages to
1: get to it. They don't make it easy, do they? They've always they've always been a bit rubbish with and <laughs> podcasts and stuff <laughs> um and, and they kind of have the crown, don't they, Apple, you know? Yeah, I
0: mean, that is, I mean, a lot of people are like, well, I haven't got an iPhone or whatever. W- whatever platform you can leave a review on it always helps. But I think, yeah, the Apple podcast chart is kind of the official, like, you know, top of the pops chart of uh, of podcasts. So if you can find it in your heart to leave us a nice little review on there, that always gets us in front of new people. So it's a really easy way to help out the show. Right, then we'll have more news for you next Friday. And now we're going to take you inside Bullfrog, games like Syndicate. Power Populous, Magic Carpet and lots more as well with this week's special guest Alex Trowers next on the Retro Hour podcast.
1: You're listening to the Retro Hour podcast and we are joined by Alex Trowers. How are you doing? I'm doing well, thank you. Excellent. And, you know, we always start this uh, with a question that we ask all of our guests and that is what was your first gaming experience? Do you kind of remember the first time you saw a video game or, or really got addicted to one? Um,
3: so I think like, so my uncle, my uncle had a, a, a BBC and I think we used to get him to fire stuff on that. But the one that really sticks with me is, and I can't even remember who it was. I think it was a cousin or somebody. They had a a, a Spectrum and we played, I think it was Pterodactyl 4D on it and and jumping uh, jumping jack as well and so those were probably the two first uh, video games that i ever actually played Um, and i can remember thinking hey this is this is really really cool because you get that kind of that sort of disconnect of of, i press these things here and that thing on the screen moves and that, that was really really exciting to us
2: you were a big Dungeons & Dragons fan, and uh, with many developers, do you think uh, computing owes a lot to Dungeons & Dragons? I think there's a lot of crossover,
3: and certainly mm. the, like, the role-playing game genre would not exist uh, were it not for Dungeons & Dragons. Uh, and I mean, both pen and paper and, and, and video. I mean, mm. I can remember, like, we got into Dungeons & Dragons in, I think it was about 78, 79, so it hadn't long been out. Um, and we were living in Guildford at the time, and I was like seven or eight. Mm. And uh, uh, we there was a there was a a game shop in town, and it was a mo- it was a model shop, but they also sold all sorts of board games. And my dad was a big gamer. He he's probably the single biggest reason why I'm into gaming at all. And every weekend or every other weekend, we would go to this shop and we'd pick out a new game that we were all going to play and come back and play it. And Uh, one day he'd gone in there and he was like, you know, I've tried most of these things. And the guy behind the counter was like, well, this has just come out. This is, this is new Dungeons and Dragons. You should try that. Mm. And so he picked up the basic set, the old red box, and he brought it back. And he said to me and my, my brother, uh, right, go do the washing up. And then uh, in half an hour, I'll have read the rules and we'll be ready to play. (laughs) And we came back half an hour later and he's like, ah. Well, yes. <laughs> Come back uh, next week. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I think I think so that was on the the Friday, and I think by yeah. the Sunday we'd actually rolled up some characters and maybe had a bit of a go. But it was such a, a paradigm shift in anything mm. we'd ever experienced. To the point that that, that eventually we kind of became uh D D evangelists. Yeah. So so dad who was a he was a he was a teacher um and he was uh he was big into his his drama and everything so he was always the gm and he would always do whenever he read us lord the rings he would do all the voices and so he loved being the, the the dungeon master right this was practically his calling um so he would prepare a couple of adventures and he would just keep them in the car Literally in the car with with the books, and when we'd go around people's houses, somehow he would manage to steer the conversation <laughs> into D and D, and then he'd get the people interested, and then be like, "Well, you know, I've got it in the car. We could just have a quick game if you wanted." And then so me and my brother would we would be kind of essentially their guides. Like we would have our characters and we'd show them how the mechanics worked and everything, and then we'd we'd all stop just playing D and D at random people's houses, and there was always a like it's very easy to see now, but but there was that moment when you know that you had them and it's mm. when these people who'd never seen it never experienced anything like this before it's when they change from my elf opens that door to i open that door and then the other guy's going no 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 if you touch that door after what happened last time then i'm gonna i'm gonna tackle you to the ground and i'm gonna and and they really 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 got into it and it was just it was just great traveling around converting people and so he I,
1: was kind of like a D pusher
3: absolutely <laughs> absolutely getting that yeah, first one's free. Every now and again, we'd get messages back from these people saying, well, "I've just
2: bought the box set." <laughs> <When did laughs> he was like a travelling D and D salesman, and he didn't
1: yeah, even yeah, know. Did he get any and, uh, commission at all.
3: <laughs> I've, I've, I've spoken to to Ian uh, Livingston about this before in the past, and and I, I think I'm owed something, or at least Dad is definitely. We we yeah we we certainly did our part in our in our uh, tiny circle, <laughs>
1: but yeah. Well, what was your first computer and how did you kind of get into programming then? So my first computer, uh,
3: like many things, you you should never send your parents out to get you a thing. When you're a kid, never send your parents out to get you a thing because they will get you the wrong thing. So my friends had Spectrums. I think one of them had a C64 and a couple of the kids from school had BBCs. What I ended up with was a TI-994 slash A and you couldn't get anything for it. And even those, do you remember those, those books, those, um, teach yourself programming, the better basic and all, all of those ones, uh, with the little robots and, and the listings inside them. None of those would work on, on my computer. And it was very, very upsetting because I'd see all these games and I think, oh yeah. And I just typed that in and, and I couldn't get it to work. And so I, I was very, very frustrating time. Uh, Eventually, (laughs) eventually, like many many years later, when I was uh, just before I joined Bullfrog, I was at this company on work experience, work placement, and I noticed one of these books on the shelf, and I said, "Oh, I used to have those." And the CEO of the company, whose office it was, he just goes, "Oh yeah, I wrote them. I wrote all of those books." And I'm like, "What?" And here he was teaching me how to program uh in his as part of his company and in effect he'd actually been teaching me to program my whole life (laughs) you know it was very very weird but yeah so that's kind of that's kind of where i started eventually i got a spectrum uh and i loved the spectrum the amount of programming i did on it was was minimal because obviously i'd discovered games by then and and it was all just what games can i play on this thing which was probably my major calling and was
1: this assembly
3: no this is on the spectrum it was just basic i do remember trying to learn machine code my mate scott he um, he had a spectrum as well and he uh, started taking up machine code uh, but he got a lot further with it than i ever did he's going to crop up again later that guy you watch
2: <laughs> and did you see gaming as a career and you know how did, how what were your first
3: steps getting into that no absolutely not gaming wasn't a career don't be silly go and get a proper job That's, <laughs> that was the that that was the thing there's that the, <laughs> I love how it's come for a circle, but you, there was that uh, Far Side cartoon, wasn't it? <laughs> I say it's a sports About now, ages. isn't it? <laughs> and, and yeah, if the parents looking down at the kid and seeing the wanted ads for people who can save the princess and what have you, and the big money that that can be made, and they're like, "Yes, this is brilliant," and it was satire then, but oh boy, it's not now, is it?
2: <laughs> no, not at all. <laughs>
3: yeah, so well, no, I, I never, I didn't even know that that game design or game development was a thing. Like I mm. hadn't made that connection at all that somebody had to be making these and getting paid to do so
1: well were you aware of bullfrog before and you were you playing any of their titles so
3: and uh, this is where scott comes back into play at some point scott got an atari st um and we were in uh, sixth form of school and we used to bunk off whatever the last period was uh, to go and go around his house and play Populous. And that's literally so that's how I discovered Bullfrog because there was this game that was unlike any other game that I'd ever played before in my life like you weren't a character you were you were an influence, and you couldn't tell people what to do. you could only kind of hint at what you wanted them to do and it was an interesting world to watch and the the altering the landscape the mechan- the mechanics of that was was just fun, there was a cadence to it, it was relaxing it was very therapeutic um it was like a sort of colouring book. For one of a better term, you know, you, you, there was a
1: compulsion to it, and it was like a board game, wasn't it?
3: Yeah, 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 yeah. It's like here's the here's the environment, is the board, and that's your means of interacting with the little pieces that were doing their own things. So I, I absolutely loved that. But yeah, that was my that was my introduction to Bullfrog. The product also in town was this other game shop called Ultima, where again you can trace a lot of ex Bullfrog people to that shop in particular. Uh, Either they were hanging out in that shop or they actively worked there. And so I used to go there after school and hang out. And that's where I would would meet Kevin and Glenn. So I knew those two before I knew uh, of Bullfrog, really. Uh, So the question, obviously, one of the questions I always get asked is, "So how did you get started? How did you get started in the industry? And before I answer that, I have to say that I in no way endorse this method of starting in the industry. Uh, if, if this is your, if this is your aim, then this is the wrong way to be doing it. But yeah, so I, I knew those guys. Mm. Um, I was after school, when I left school, I had no idea what it was that I wanted to do. Something in cartoons, I was thinking. Uh, I had no real qualifications at all. Um, no A-levels. Uh, I ended up on the iTech course, which was basically a YTS scheme back then. Now, the irony, and this is where I ended up at that uh, other place with the guy who wrote those books before. And so I was learning C, learning a little bit of programming there. Uh, and they were really nice. It was really, it was really good fun. The course itself was terrible, like utterly, utterly terrible. Um, they were teaching us outdated things. Nobody who was there really wanted to be there. The only good thing that they did, and this was a, a brilliant thing, was to get us placements at proper companies, and and good good placements as well. Like it wasn't just you're going to go there and make the tea. It's you're going to go there and and do your apprenticeship as a coder and, and that sort of stuff. So that was really, really good. And it just so happens that this was the place that Sean went to like a couple of years previously. Or he was like one year ahead of me, I think. Mm-hmm. And um, we happened to live in the same town. We were both living over in Farnham at the time. So we would be on the same bus. So I got to know Sean a little bit. And I said what I was doing, and he's like, "Oh, that's pretty cool." Um, but why don't you come in and see us? Because we're always looking for people. So, so I did. I came in. I I met Peter. Um, we were chatting, and and he was saying, you know, so what, you know, what do you want to do? Do you like games? I love games. I used to play this. I used to play Populous. I think it's brilliant. Um, oh, and he was getting quite excited, and he said, "Okay, yes." Yeah, so uh, when could you start? And I said, "Well." Give me, give me like two weeks to square it with the other guys because they'd been really good to me and I don't want to mess them around. And he goes, oh, cool, that sounds really good. So I left there and when I went back to work, I told them, I said, listen, look, I've had this offer and it's games and it's something that I'm really interested in. And they were like, oh, no, no, please don't go. You know, whatever they're offering will match it. And I'm like, look, you guys are brilliant, but, but this is something I think I have to do. I, I, it's something I'd really, really like to try. And they were like, okay, well, we're sorry to see you go, but we understand. And so two weeks later, I turn up at uh, the office and I I sit down and Peter eventually comes in like none of them really started work until about 10. Uh, So Peter eventually comes in, takes one look at me and goes, what are you doing here? I never offered you the job. (laughs) And that's when I realized that he hasn't. But he has a very very special way of talking that makes you think that he says stuff when maybe he perhaps hasn't. (laughs) Or he's agreeing to things that maybe perhaps he doesn't. So I, I, let, I, I kind of walked out of there in a daze, having packed in my other job, and I went around the corner to this uh, board game shop, it was called Alien Encounters, and I went in there and I said to the owner, I said, look, I think I've made a terrible mistake, and he was like, don't worry about it, I've got just the thing, reached up on the shelf, pulled down a box copy of Talisman, and that's, we sat down and we played Talisman all day
1: oh god Um, talisman's such a good game i was addicted to that back in the days you've just given me a big wave of nostalgia there
3: (laughs) but then you know obviously so i had to go home at some point and explain to my dad that that i just made this God awful mistake. And he was like, well, you've got to go back. You've got to go back and get your job back. You know, what else are you going to do? You've got to go and do that. And I was like, no, 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 no. This is something that that I want to do. I reckon, I reckon I could, I could make a living at this. Um, And so essentially what happened was I, I went on the dole for like six months. Now during that, that period, every now and again, I'd get a call from Peter uh, and they'd be looking for somebody to come in and play the game, try out the game, or they'd have journalists coming over. So they wanted to make the office look busy or anything like that. And, and I would be his first call. There were, there were a number of us, actually, there were a number of kind of bullfrog, bullfrog adjacent people, bullfrog kind of hangers on like me and uh, Jonty Barnes, for instance, or A.D. Moore. And we were all kids who eventually ended up working there. And after about six months or so, the Guy who had the job that I would ultimately end up getting left and moved to the States. Now, funny enough, he was a guy who I was also at school with at the, at the same school with. Um, but he left and I got a call from Peter saying, listen, you were pretty enthusiastic. Do you still want that job? And I said, yeah. And that, that was it. It took like six months to get there, but I got there in the end. But yeah, like I said, that I don't advise this approach. <laughs> don't <laughs> quit a job unless you've guaranteed to have a job to go to.
2: Well I was going to say you convinced me you got it telling me the story. <laughs> so what was what was Peter like? You know, you kind of said he was a bit I mean, to me he sounds a bit crazy, but what what was he like? Oh, he was he was absolutely crazy, but everybody was crazy there. Mm. No, he um he is
3: incredibly charismatic. Uh he is incredibly passionate about mm. games. He is a uh, a very clever designer and up until recently the single best uh PR person for a games company you could ever have nobody can sell a game like Peter can
1: Um, I I I was gonna say like god games were really innovative back then it was just like a total new genre did you feel you were on like the cutting edge of something
3: all the while uh, we were at Bullfrog so when I started there I think there was eight of us right and every game we did was it seemed to be gold dust every game we did would always have rave reviews and and we would always be kind of pushing the boundaries of of what people thought constituted a game or or the normal approach to making a game we wouldn't do that we would try and do something a little bit different a little bit innovative so yeah and and a lot of that was it, it was just the creative energy that that we had there and there was no there was no one person who did all of the things, or there was no one person whose idea it was. Peter was normally the big idea guy, like he would say he would say it should be set in a jungle with a hamster, and then it would be up to everyone else to go, right but then the hamster could do this, and this is how we make the hamster move, and this is what we can make the hamster do, and and so everybody else would kind of just fill in the blanks from his kind of uh, big idea setting and the high the high. The high philosophy stuff would be him, and then we would fill in the details. So the the only reason it worked is because he surrounded himself with people who could actually do that.
2: So you were you started on Powermonger, um, and obviously being a big Populous fan and board game fan, that must have been great to get started on.
3: It well, yeah, it was really exciting. And again, bear in mind that uh, as my first game, I just assumed that this is how. All games were made,
2: mm.
3: and it felt very chaotic and very exciting. Um, that's not to say, like, like looking back on it now, Powermongers, not actually a particularly good game. There are a lot of restrictions in it, but it was so innovative and so ahead of its time. You could argue that it's the first RTS game. Yeah. That you know, it it maybe we started that genre too. I mean, I I wouldn't because I don't think we did a particularly good job as far as RTS's go. But um, it certainly had all the elements of it, and mm-hmm. and again, the view nobody was making games in that kind of view, and just the mechanics, the, the 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 indirectness, and at those in those days, Peter had a philosophy on games that he was always trying to explain, which was that that just because you stop, the game shouldn't, and he had a very kind of voyeuristic approach to it, i.e the game world just works okay there's a simulation running and there is something happening in the game the game exists whether you're there or not and you can poke it with a stick or you can walk away or you can just sit on top of a hill and watch what happens and all of those things are, are viable all of those things are entertaining and and i think that's 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 something that that we really kind of embraced certainly in the in the early titles
1: well you worked on theme park right uh, that was a groundbreaking game and was it was it kind of a hard proposition uh you know essentially being a business game did people think it would be successful
3: i worked on theme park in so much as uh that one of the one of the icons is mine i drew the little light bulb when there's an invention um and you know we we played around with it a bit at the start prior to theme park every game that we did the whole company would work on it and everybody would get buying and everyone was really excited about Theme Park was the first game that we did that at the point where Peter says I've got an idea for a game, it's Theme Park, we all went huh? And not many people got it or saw the point in it. Um, The other thing was of course that me and Sean were doing Syndicate at the time as well, which was an altogether more exciting prospect for me. There was certainly some sort of trepidation behind Theme Park and we didn't know if it would be right, but Peter kind of got this sort of blinkered no, 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 I can see this, I can see this and most of us most of us couldn't, but I'm happy to say that he was proved 100% right by the end of it. You know? so, but yeah, so I didn't, do, I didn't do that much on Theme Park because, like, like I said, we were finishing off Syndicate and I think that we were beginning to move on to uh, Magic Carpet or Populous Village, as it was called at the start, which was basically Glenn making a 3D engine and trying to recreate Populous again in 3D.
2: So with uh, Theme Park, it was originally going to include a multiplayer mode. Do you know why that was dropped?
3: I don't know what else you would do. I don't know what you would do it. You know, there's a finite amount of space, so you could mm. compete for the terrain. There was multiplayer in so much as we would all be um, – oh, sorry. By the time we did Theme Hospital, Theme Hospital mm. had a multiplayer component in so much as you could get it to save your scores onto a central server um and all compete that way but that was about it you know so the same is true the same is true of theme park i don't think we again as a departure from all the games that went before it i don't think we were ever building it as a multiplayer game first
2: i was going to say i played a lot of theme park and when i read that question then i was just a little bit like i can't imagine how that would have worked at all (laughs)
3: <laughs> I, don't, I don't know but also equally i wouldn't put it past peter i'm sure there's something there that you, you could absolutely do and having played the likes of you know transport tycoon stuff like that multiplayer they're amazing so
1: mm. yeah maybe like trying to bankrupt the other theme park or but, um, steal their resources or something might it might work these these days like
3: you could you could quite easily do a
1: a, a co-op theme park and that would be awesome too What did they want to improve in Populous 2 then? And uh, what were the big changes? So, uh, Populous 2 did several things
3: differently to the first. The first thing it did was uh, we lost the restriction of only one unit on a tile at any one time, which was quite exciting. We could now have multiple people on a tile. We went to town with the effects. Like, we went up from, what was it, eight effects in the first one to about 40 odd in the second, which in hindsight was a terrible mistake. Because there was just too much stuff, but basically, yeah, the engine was improved. We had an actual graphic artist making the graphics, which was which was a, a lovely departure. Um, but other than that, like the the functionality was broadly the same. We did also then experiment with more with the ideas of combinations of effects. So certain effects would work really well with certain other effects with, to varying degrees of success. But I think, I think we got a lot of things wrong with Populous 2. I, I think it had the potential to be a better game. It was a better engine. Um, we knew much more about what we were doing, but, but we made too many little mistakes along the way, I think. And the, the, the chief of which was overwhelming the player
2: with godly effects to do. So let's talk about Syndicate. Syndicate was an amazing title. Where did that concept come from and what was it like working on that game? Syndicate is the
3: answer to the question, what was your favourite game to work on, right? I Mm. I had such a good time Mm. making Syndicate. So when it started, it was this sort of 2D isometric view scrolly game on the Amiga. Yeah, Uh, But when we pivoted to... When we made the decision, look, this is going to be our first PC title, then it became the 3D isometric, which in and of itself was a big undertaking. Like the amount of very, very bespoke code that um, Sean and Glenn had to write to even get this thing feasible was just ridiculous i can remember the first meeting we had when we were talking about it and it was in pizza hut in in guildford and it was literally back of a napkin stuff like people were writing stuff down on the back of the napkin and that's that's certainly where the persuadertron came out the idea of having these crowds of people like like the idea that we were going to simulate a city and have people running around the city doing their own thing that was a given almost from the start because, again, like I said, it, it fitted with our ethos of of the world just keeps going no matter what. And we knew we'd have to do some kind of traffic thing. And and there were lots of plans for actually, you know, so like in Power Munger where the individual units do have a, a house, you know, they live at this house and they have a job. So they go and tend the fields or they go and look after sheep or they go fishing. Um, we were going to do all of that and expand all of that out into a city. Ultimately, we never ended up doing that, but it certainly, we gave the impression that the city was, was fully functional and, and alive. Then we just started talking about all the cool different weapons we could have. and Like uh, Paul, who's the uh, art director, the lead artist at the time, he, uh, he had a big thing for... For Blade Runner uh, so a lot of the aesthetic was all down to uh Sid Mead's stuff and the idea that the I mean it's hard to tell looking at a screenshot but the idea is that the whole thing takes place at night but the ground is all kind of yellow because of the street lights but then when you look up the buildings they're all black and in the darkness of the night and then we would have all these billboards and the flying airship and hover cars and what have you so it was all sort of very highly Blade Runner influenced but the idea that you would then have this living breathing city that you run around with your units who again you didn't have you didn't have total control of it's not like you're moving them around with a joystick you would you were instructing them where they could go but because of the way you would alter the the drugs in their head they would change the way that they walked there and again that system was never fully realized like it, it was pretty basic in the end because we had to make it simple enough for people to understand, but it's still, it still plays quite a, a heavy part in the game. And there are lots and lots of tactics to do with how you would set your people up for certain engagements, especially multiplayer again.
1: And that's that's still very kind of board gamey y and, and Dungeons and & Dragons, you know, having a team of four that you then kind of go out with and, and, and do different things. Um, with, with, regarding the level design, um, how tricky was it dealing with, like, the multiple levels that you had and all the, the walkways and uh, kind of, you know, uh, making the AI so that it could actually go around these things and have, have a decent path?
3: So to to start with, we were that all of the tools that we'd built were on the Amiga, um, and so I would have to build the uh, environments on the Amiga, and then I could bring them into the PC and actually start building the missions there. So uh, and and also all of the all of the environments were made out of four by four by I think they were eight blocks high chunks, and I could only edit a four by four by eight chunk at any one time so i was having to kind of piece together all these different things so it was quite it was quite a lengthy process to construct the cities themselves then i had to populate the cities that was relatively simple in terms of the people but in terms of placing all the things like the windows that you could shoot out or the the lampposts or the um the cars driving around that was quite uh, cumbersome and then the ai the navigation thing was an immense challenge, and Sean did a bang-up job. Because this, I think, you know, this this predates a star really being a thing in the industry or anything. So there were all sorts of different solutions. Because because in Populous, I think I believe the way, and in Powermonger, I believe the way the AI would work was, the the little guy would walk along until he hit something he couldn't get past, i.e., the water. Then he would turn left, and he would walk along and basically stick out his right arm and try and wall hug left to get around things, and that didn't work in syndicate because of the topography like you say all the different walkways so we ended up having we would mark the the beginnings and ends of, of walkways anywhere that went up a ramp into a walkway we'd have a little invisible node placed at the bottom of it saying look from here you can get to this other piece and from here so we kind of built out a um, uh, a, a sort of navigation tree like that ultimately but it took us a long while to get there and that was one of the one of the absolute major challenges funnily enough one of the other challenges was processing where you'd actually clicked and for the longest time we would just you would have to click uh where you wanted them to go but at the very ground level so if you wanted them to go up onto a walkway you were clicking somewhere beneath the walkway by an arbitrary amount and that was that was absolutely horrific so but when we got the the proper uh accurate clicking in that was a that was an absolute godsend. It was also, like, at the start of the game as well, it was also, you had controlled eight eight guys. You had a squad of eight men, not four. Um, but only me and Sean could actually play that, so... We ended up having to pare that
2: down. So the free roaming and the full exploration of the map was, you know, unseen at that level before. How did you fit it all in?
3: The hardest part was getting it to run at any kind of frame rate. And for that, we were doing very clever things about how we would update the screen and the bits that we would draw and the bits that we couldn't redraw. Because the other thing was, as well as the, the move to PC, this was the first, this was one of the first PC games to do it in their nominal high res mode you know most people were doing it in kind of mcga the 256 color modes but that was quite low res whereas this one syndicate is actually made in 16 colors but because of the resolution and the fact that we had some really awesome artists means that most people don't realize that that was the case but yeah there were there were lots and lots of technical challenges about actually getting that running on the hardware back then
1: what was your favorite level and uh, you're right about the technical challenges because some of those later levels on the amiga um, when it got really crazy <laughs> it would it's- be a
3: huge <laughs> slowdown it's fair to say that the poor Amiga wasn't quite up to the task. Now, Disky, the guy who did the Amiga conversion, did a bang-up job, but there was no way a standard Amiga was going to be able to run that. Uh, it, I think it works fine on an A1200, but on an A500 you were always going to be on a hiding to nothing. They just didn't have the power of the PC. As for my favorite level, I well, I can't remember the, the name of it, but there was one where you were trying to... Um, assassinate a guy on the steps of the town hall just because that always got a really good reaction from people because it was one of the best illustrations of how we would get how we would make the population feel alive because they're all kind of standing around in a big ring but as soon as he gets shot or as soon as somebody gets out a gun they all scream and run away and that was just that's i think that was a lovely moment Uh, people normally come up to me though and give me grief about the atlantic accelerator because it was way too hard
2: so American Revolt was like a piece of DLC and you know it was it made a lot of great improvements. What was the aim there with that?
3: The aim of American Revolt was me um putting one over on the guy who still worked at Ultima who was complaining that Syndicate was too easy. And so I made American Revolt just stupidly hard. American Revolt was a terribly bad idea. Oh no, it was a great idea uh, and we should have had um we should have done it, but but it was balanced for me uh, and nobody else. And even then, like I, I think I went back to it like 10 years later or something and tried playing it, and I couldn't play it because it relied so heavily on sort of crackerjack timing and learning what was about to kill you. So it was a horrible thing. But when we did the original, the plan was always, there were 50 territories in the world, and there were going to be three missions on each. So there was going to be a mission where you take over the territory, A mission where you defend the territory against somebody else and a mission where you go and retake the territory once it's been captured by somebody else. But that was too many missions, and we realised pretty soon that we weren't going to be able to do all of those, so we ended up pairing it down to just one mission per territory. So American Revolt was going to be the, let's have another go at, at putting more missions into these places.
1: What Was there a plan for a syndicate too? And like I know Syndicate Wars came later, and you're not the biggest fan of it. I'm, to be honest, I'm not either, um, <laughs> just because of all the 3D and the camera angles and stuff. But inside Bullfrog, was there a, a, a push for kind of... A number two, but based on the uh, original engine. At,
3: at that point, we were still not really doing sequels. I know like we'd done Populous 2 by then, and I know a lot of people thought that Power Monger was a sequel as well, but um, we weren't really into it. We was always coming, what else can we do? What's the next thing? And then we moved on to Magic Carpet, and that, that was cool. But yeah, there was, there was definitely a plan for Syndicate 3, to the extent that when Sean came back to Bullfrog, and so this is... Uh, after Peter's left. So Sean came back to Bullfrog and I was at a loose end and he said, listen, look, let's get together and let's make Syndicate 3. And we started specking it out to kind of fix the issues that we saw with Syndicate Wars. To be honest with you, the only only stuff that I didn't like in Syndicate Wars, I mean, I didn't particularly like the low res nature compared to the first one, but it had to be done like that to get the Polygon stuff in, which was okay. Um, But it was just that as it was built as a PlayStation title or with that in mind, the whole thing had to be played on a joypad, which yeah. meant that it was, it was no longer about moving my individual guys and, and navigating the city as a squad uh, by, cause like the way I used to play it was I would have one guy out front, two guys who would go from cover to cover with the machine, with the miniguns, And then one guy at the back with either the gauss gun or the laser, like bring up the rear as a support guy. And I love that kind of formation aspect of it and, and add the cadence of just instructing individual units to do that. And the move to JoyPad meant you couldn't do that. So they had to basically just move around in group mode the whole time. So it felt more like just an arcade game to me. So that's, why I didn't like it as much yeah
1: I love the storyline and stuff I thought like you know the bombs in there and like the church of epoch and stuff like that was really really good fun as well so yeah I had some really good elements but for me it was just a bit tough wasn't it Uh, with the camera angles and all the kind of playing with a gamepad like you said
3: the storyline was all down to at that point we'd hired a guy called Sean Masterson and he used to be he was uh used to be the editor of White Dwarf and he's what we would call nowadays a narrative designer like all he cares about is the big story which is why again the briefings in so the briefings in the original syndicate and in fact all text in bullfrog games prior to magic carpet were written by me and the briefings were there was almost a game in the briefings as well like in the original syndicate you'd you'd buy one level of briefing and it would be a paragraph telling you what you had to do then you could buy extra information which might tell you where to do it and then you could buy even more information which would be and here's some hints about how you might achieve that in syndicate wars what you got was like a mini novella with each mission it would be paragraphs and paragraphs of text and wonderful exposition and all of this stuff that nobody actually cared about because they just wanted to know who's the guy i'm supposed to shoot and you didn't find that out until you tabbed over three pages or something so it was for for a lot of people in in the office i think it was it was far too wordy (laughs) clever words nice words flowery words but far too many
2: of so you worked on Magic Carpet. You mentioned there, and uh, I've got a lot of fun memories with it. Uh, I remember my brother showing it me when we first got a PlayStation, um, and it blew my mind. What was it like, you know, showing off Magic Carpet? Did people's jaws hit the floor?
3: Uh, absolutely. Mm. Again, it was something nobody had seen this kind of thing before. The way I, the way I always liken it is, is. By then, we were developing a bit of a reputation. Like, again, everything we kind of tried worked out to some extent. Like, the, the games would always be critically very, very well-received indeed. You know, while the bitmaps were cooler, I think we were we were quirkier uh, and people liked our stuff. And we had, a, I think, a wider variety mm. to our to our games. Um, there were a bunch of people making flight sims, you know, like the the Simis guys and, and the people who did, uh, yes, yeah, like Terracide and stuff like that. And I think they thought they were safe. And so when they got wind of this thing that we were doing and started seeing the, the- Images coming out of this free-roaming landscape, and you flying around on it. I think they started getting scared as well, and we loved that. We loved the idea that you know no genre was safe from us. We will we will make a game uh, in any genre, and we will make it fun, and we will make it more interesting than anything you, a specialist in that genre, could possibly do. Um, so that was really really exciting. And I, I do remember taking a um, uh, a PC down to uh, Future in in Bath because I was going to demo magic carpet me being one of the only people that peter would actually let talk to the press because he didn't trust anyone to do it with the correct amount of passion and enthusiasm uh so i went down there with kathy campos our pr lady at the time and we had to bring our own machine because you know this was a pentium 90 and nobody had those and it needed that much power to run so yeah we had to bring our own machine set it all up and she was like you know make it run really fast and i'm like yeah you have absolutely no idea how computers work do you um but yeah, when we showed it to the magazine and they were just they were gobsmacked because again they hadn't seen anything like this before.
1: For years we were kind of playing around with like voxel engines and stuff on the Amiga, but they were in these tiny little windows and stuff. How important was level design kind of being placed on top of that engine and, and making it fun and interesting?
3: Uh very. That's your interface to the to the user and you can have the best tech in the world or you can have the flashiest graphics or anything like that. But if they put together a shonky level, you're in a lot of trouble. You know. So uh for the longest time again it was just it was just me building the levels. Like I built all the levels in in Power manga Uh the levels in Populous don't really count because they were just some random numbers in a text file. But yeah, the crafting the the, the syndicate missions, crafting the multi the magic carpet missions that was me in um Sean Masterson and uh, I think then Barry Mead came on as well, and they were crafted. But the, the, I think the problem that existed in those days as well was that building the engine was only half of the battle, and and it's easy saying oh and then you just build some levels for it, but somebody had to make the level editor as well. So the amount of work that went into actually producing one of these levels, and there's no you know third party engines or anything like that in those days, so you had to do absolutely all of the work, and hardly any of it would. Carry over to the next project. You were always starting again from scratch, but yeah, I, I, I mean, my essentially my first role was a level designer, and it's something I always loved doing. I loved creating the missions
2: in that. So, uh, Magic Carpet obviously came out on quite a few systems, but it never made its way to the Amiga. Why was that? Because the Amiga can't do that many polygons. Certainly I, not texture. I really didn't want to ask that question, but
1: yeah, I do remember there were screenshots though at no, one point. Uh, what? No, 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 I'm well, not going to yeah, lie. Ravi, Ravi wrote these questions, and I was embarrassed to ask that.
2: <laughs>
3: <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. Somebody. We we may we may have made up some screenshots and like dial it down to sixteen colors or what have you. But no, there was never anything. There was never any real thought that the Amiga would be able to do any of this. And let me say, like, I loved the Amiga. Like, it, it's the thing that got me my break in the industry. I played some absolutely wonderful games on it um for you know four or five years. But then. PCs came out or, or PCs started hitting their stride and that was it there was no looking back up from that point
1: and uh gene wars used the magic carpet engine like how easy was it to adapt that engine
3: again that's a very common uh, i want to say misconception except it isn't really it is rooted in a an, an amount of truth that basically from magic carpet onwards everything used the magic carpet engine right um and that's not strictly true everything used kind of glenn's polygonal thing and, and they were everything was pretty much based on height fields, but each engine was bespoke. It would start with Glenn's magic carpet as a base or whatever the latest iteration of it was as a base. But yeah, it, w- it would be different. So the landscape is very magic carpety, but everything else was was um, more bespoke. In fact it used a sprite engine similar to the one that we did in Populous 2 that would later be even further refined for uh, theme hospital. Uh, but yeah, the landscape ended up being. I mean, the landscape started out as a hexagonal version of Populous, sort of landscape blocks and everything. But this, this, this kind of predates even Powermonger. The, the the very first version of Gene Wars was actually a game called Biosphere that was done by a very good friend of mine, Richard Reed, and he'd sent it in to EA, no, sorry, I think he'd, he'd, yeah, he'd sent it into EA. They said they weren't interested, but the disc ended up on my desk and Pete was like, can you take a look at this game and tell me if you think it's any good? And I absolutely loved it. I said, look, this thing's brilliant. It's really, really nice. It was about a, a group of alien planetary specialists who had to terraform planets for uh for money so you know the the big planet owners would come along and say we want a planet that's got this much biomass on it and the atmosphere is this and it's got this much land and uh, these particular creatures on it can you help and then you would send these specialists in with with seeds and and livestock and you would have to make a functioning ecosystem and i absolutely loved it and then we we hired richard we got him in uh and for many many years we tried to make that game but we weren't really getting anywhere with it we had some really cool stuff but it wasn't really getting anywhere until eventually sean was parachuted in as the by then sean had this reputation of being the closer if you wanted a game finished and shipped you put sean in charge of the project uh and we had all been playing an awful lot an awful lot of cnc and he was like let's make that We'll make an RTS, but we'll use the animals and stuff like that as our as our units instead. And so that's how Gene Wars eventually hit the
2: shelves. So Dungeon Keeper took God Gaming to the next level. What was your reaction the first time you tried that game?
3: So Dungeon Keeper, again, is an interesting one um, in that at the start, it was basically Simon and Dean Carter, mm. who are big like role-playing game fans, uh, and they were making... They were making a more traditional role-playing game because all we really knew about Dungeon Keeper was, again, Peter's big idea of let's be the bad guy. And that was the direction that all anybody had at the start of the project. So they'd made this thing where you were you were building a dungeon, so you were placing down the shape of rooms um, and your dungeon would be populated by bad things Um, it was multiplayer you would go and raid other people's dungeons and the heroes would come in and start smashing your dungeon up Um, and it was very in-depth and it was quite complex and then peter came back um, and said no 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 this isn't working this is too tricky this is too complex and he scrapped the whole lot and started again from scratch and he wrote a basically uh, a 2d version of, of dungeon keeper which is the one that we know today i.e. the all i'm doing is i'm, I'm tagging gold um, and i'm i'm tagging areas to dig out that level of granularity rather than the the blueprint system that we had previously so if anybody wonders why dungeon keeper took so long it's cuz in the sense we actually wrote it twice like dean and simon almost finished this game and then peter came in and said no 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 we'll start again but it worked it, it worked again i think he was he was justified Uh, because again the 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 final game was so well received and i don't think it would have been had we stuck with what we what it was that we were trying to make
1: with the studio kind of growing then and uh ea starting to get involved uh how how big did the teams get to and um like uh how come dungeon keeper 2 was your last project there so by the
3: time you get to like, like most of the teams were like 10 to 15 people at around that sort of time. But by the time you get to Dungeon Keeper 2, I think it was like closer to 50, 60 people um, mm. just on the, the dev team. And that isn't even going into like the QA department or the marketing department and the, the production side of things from EA and, and all sorts of stuff. So it, the, the team's got, got way big. I mean, there's nothing to what team sizes are nowadays. But, but again, like I said, coming from when when there was eight of us in the whole company and we would all work on one game to to then being this kind of much smaller cog in a in a in a huge machine was quite quite jarring. But the the, the reason it was my last project, so I only ended up on uh, Dungeon keeper two because again, just prior to that, like I said, Sean had said, Hey look, let's go make Syndicate three and I was like, Yes. So it was just me and him and we was and around some ideas for syndicate three and then dungeon keeper two was in a bit of a problem was, was as with many many of the projects there they were losing their way a bit so they parachuted sean in again they said look sean can you come and fix this and he said yeah sure alex come with me and so that's how i ended up on the project it wasn't something i particularly wanted to do i enjoyed it and i thought it was a good game and i thought again we improved on so many things that i felt was 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 missing in the original or were lacking areas that were lacking in the original again we shot ourselves in the foot with some of the decisions we made but but overall i thought it was a i thought it was a better game but by the end of it or towards the end of it i was just getting too frustrated with uh the decisions that were being made higher up with the company had become a lot more corporate because now it was really really ea and they were getting involved a lot more they were having to get involved a lot more because we were shooting ourselves in the foot or we were being crazy and creative but not actually producing anything worthwhile. And these guys were there to balance the books and ensure that we did actually ship something of a quality by when we said we were going to do so. And to be honest, we never did that. We we would never ship stuff on time because we were just too excited about the games or we got carried away with things or we were just messing around, you know. So that's why that's why I ended up leaving because it, it changed. And, and by then as well, there were a lot of people like... At the point where I left, I think I was the second longest serving person there. I think only, I think there was only one guy who had been at Bullfrog before me left. So my mates had gone, you know, everyone had gone and set up their own little companies and everyone was still in in Guildford, you know, we still saw them all, but they were off doing their own thing. And, and I thought that sounded quite exciting.
1: Yeah. Essentially that it kind of got drained out of people until Peter Molyneux left himself as well. And, um, you you worked with uh, Lost Toys Inc. as well, which was a uh, Glenn Corpus and a few other Bullfroggers as well. Uh, how how was your time there? So every um,
3: studio that was founded out of the ashes of, of what well, out of the ashes of Bullfrog, everybody who left Bullfrog to start up a studio did it for exactly the same reason, and that was we want to recreate what we had. We want to go back to the air quotes good old days, right? Peter did it and has done it a number of times. Disky and Finn and Guy and Gary, who went to do Muckyfoot, they did it for that exact reason. And Glenn, um, Glenn, Darren and Jez did exactly the same thing with Lost Toys. It's like, look, let's let's just try and get it back to how it was. We're going to have a small team. Everybody works on the same game. Um, Everybody knows each other. Everybody knows everybody's names. Um, And we're going to have a lot of fun making these interesting titles so that was the that was the appeal to me and at the start of lost toys it really was that and in fact right up to the end it really was that we had a we had some lovely banter uh i think by and large everybody got on really really well with each other we had some amazingly talented people there and not just not just uh ex Bullfrog people or anything like that we got some uh, categorically the most talented programmers i have ever worked with there as well and it was just really really good fun um but then it's just the timing was bad because because it was the great indie crash of the early 2000s, where all of these companies just started going to the wall. Um, and that was the problem. That's why that's why Lost Toys went down as well. We just kind of all got caught up in that. And some bad luck with trying to get publishers for the Stunt Car Racer game, which we thought, we thought the Stunt Car Racer game was going to be brilliant. And it was great fun, like really, really good fun to play. Again, we'd got a really decent uh, engine. It was great fun building the roller coaster tracks the physics was really good we have jeff crammond involved who's an absolute legend we thought this is this is going to be amazing and 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 how could we possibly fail and the answer is yes of course you can possibly fail if no publisher wants to pick you up
1: so and amazingly um kind of that that was going to be the last title wasn't it before you guys uh, ran out of cash amazingly there's a fan remake at the moment of a stone car racer that's doing the rounds
3: yeah there's there's a guy there's a guy on twitter who every now and again he'll ping us saying have you got the have you got the footage of the stuff that you used to have have you got any of the source code does it still compile can i have a look and we're like i, I don't really know no i don't think any of those computers exist anymore and it would never we would never be able to get any of that up and running especially not like cuz at the at the point where the company went Uh, belly under you know all of those assets were then put up for auction and you know we're having to sell off these machines to cover the cover the creditors and all sorts so what happened to them I've got absolutely no idea but you could I don't think you'd ever be able to get any of it going yeah there's
1: uh, one one fan made one called Stunt Car Mania at the moment (laughs) (laughs) that seems to be uh, coming out so uh, maybe you could check that out and kind of see what they've done Um, I,
3: I, I really enjoyed I really enjoyed aspects of that game but then there were, again some decisions were being made that just seemed utterly utterly crazy at the time and and, and sort of outside our sphere of control so yeah, yeah i'd love well, to do it i'd love to do it again i'd love to have another crack at that kind of thing at like physics based racing game on roller coasters i mean come on, that's an easy sell right totally, look at all the totally. parkour stuff in gta right
1: And just chuck it in VR and then you've got...
3: Don't get me started on VR. Look, we're coming up on an hour here. It's not the the retro two hours, is it? No.
1: (laughs) Right. Well, I think I'll end it there before we get too deep into other subjects. But it's just been fantastic talking with you, Alex, about Bullfrog. And, you know, it's such a legendary company. Um, uh, What what are you up to nowadays?
3: So uh, at the moment, I'm working for Splash Damage. Uh, over in over in Bromley on an unannounced unannounced project which is quite it's quite exciting actually they seem like a really nice bunch of guys uh, they seem to really know their onions and it's just it's nice to be sort of back in the in the in the big time uh, we, were, we were doing the indie thing for a while but the indie thing is incredibly brutal ridiculously hard especially if you're trying to do it on on mobile as well so I'm enjoying my time at, at splash damage. Uh, not least of which because it's a regular paycheck, which is something that I haven't seen for the last five years. Uh, So, yeah, it's very exciting for me.
1: Excellent. Well, thanks for coming on.
3: (laughs) Thanks for having me.